You don't like that Miss Selim is the villain of that tale, that you are like Miss Selim, a potential threat, without a Shemshina to control you. He says this matter-of-factly, not as a question. Demaya squirms. How does he always seem to know what she's thinking? I don't want to be a threat, she says in a small voice. Then, greatly daring, she adds, But I don't want to be... controlled, either. I want to be... She gropes for the words, then remembers something her brother once told her about what it meant to grow up. Responsible. Yeah, no, the thing that I am eating right now that I think is in parallel with your wholly consumed <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper and all. Um, I've got some ch- chili uh-huh. that I made earlier this week that I was like, this is like some C plus chili. Mm. It's like kind of bland. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a little undersalted. Like, it's fine if you put, like, some salt and some cheese on it. But, yeah. you know, the thing that really elevates it is if you put two cups of uh, Red Hot Cheetos into oh. the chili <laughs> as you are cooking it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounds – so it's like uh, chili locals. See, si, see, si. yeah. <laughs> it's la verdad. Uh, yeah. uh, necesito un palabra um, se, que um, – Communicated, uh, communic, hmm, <laughs> que dice or significa? Si, si, muy loco, <laughs> loquísimo, <laughs> loquísimo. Uh, no sé, no sé. Uh, el, el uh, loco sobre miedra de los mercilagos. Si, <laughs> si, sí, sí, plátanos. <laughs> That's soon. Trabajadore en progreso. So, uh, listeners, for those of you who speak Spanish, how do you say batshit crazy in Spanish? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or crazier? Yeah. Over the top craziness. The top. Um, it's really taken my chili from C plus to like B minus. Yeah. That's well, yeah. Um,. I used to, one of my secret ingredients when I used to make crab cakes a lot was um, either red hot blue chips or Mm. just straight up Doritos pulverized and added uh, to kind of like the... um, just the you know the 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 mixture you know mm-hmm. just um because you know you a lot of times you'll add some people will add some breadcrumbs to a crab cake uh to help with the binding and so, or or um and i think in particular this would not be good for like salmon cakes or it was something there was something about crab and that kind of maltodextrin the flavor mm-hmm. um yeah. that doritos and red hot blues have um that just like that just like really like twisted the throttle it did on like, yeah yeah this is this is amazing yeah yes um yes I, I had a girlfriend at the time who was quite fond of that secret ingredient you know you're sort of a connoisseur of um this is funny this is uh this is a very upper middle brown moment my knowledge of you and cooking things is generally you're sort of at your best 
when you take a very lowbrow item, pulverize it, and then coat a much higher brow item with that coating. Like, I think one of my earliest, like, experiences cooking with you involved pulverizing cornflakes in which to batter a piece of, like, fish that maybe, you know, I don't think we had ever gone, I don't think we'd ever fished together. I don't think we caught it freshly. we probably got it from the market. Um, Yeah, we probably went to Hannaford's. Yeah, I vaguely recall it. In fact, last night I cooked myself a feast. A birthday feast? A birthday feast. It w- because it is the day after your birthday. It is. It is. Although I don't like to publicize the official date of that. So, hmm. But, um, uh, but uh, yes, we're in early May. A date that will be lost to time because I, podcasting recording happens in yeah. no time. Yeah, exactly. People will be like, it's in July? Um, <laughs> I made... Um, I made uh, uh surf and surf uh so uh <laughs> grouper and uh scallops um okay and and surf and surf and chips uh and really good uh handmade uh, uh french fries which is about as uh, sort of a decadent camping meal i could come up as i could come up with you know i, I feel like that's yeah. about as good as i did and i battered the grouper the grouper was excellent and i battered it with this a combination of louisiana fish fry that you get at the grocery store. I don't really like using cornflakes and things like that anymore. I don't like those really crispy things. I, I generally like to go with a seasoned flour. Um, and then I added some hush bruppy seasoning to just your oh point um, because that, cause I didn't quite have enough of the Louisiana fish fry and that was like the only other flour-like material that I had. And I also thought it would be good. And um, yeah, it was excellent. It was an excellent... Yeah. And I don't know if it was the grouper itself or the combination of louisiana fish fry which is paprika heavy and um you know it's basically flour paprika probably pulverized onion a few other little things in there um, sounds great yeah yeah and then there is a sweet onion quality to the hush puppy mix almost like a kind of a cornbread mix but not all that gritty it was very uh grind ground very fine and man the com it was I wasn't sh- I mean, I knew it would be good, but it was, I was like, when I had the first bite of it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, yeah, we hit the jackpot here. And um, <laughs> I mean, you don't, you don't also like on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, they have fish, fresh grouper that like somebody caught 40 miles away, which is not the case mm-hmm. for most of America. We're actually sitting, I think this is about as close as you can get to actual grouper fishing grounds. You know, we're so close mm-hmm. to the Atlantic shelf here. Um so yeah, that was exciting. And of course the scallops were great, but like, you know, they were even, normally the scallops would be the highlight of the meal. They were basically just the appetizer. The only problem was that I had such a busy day that I, and I had to clean my kitchen before cooking it, which involves boiling water. So I didn't actually start cooking till like 8.30. And then I was pretty, oh pretty tired. <laughs> I was, at one point it was like nine o'clock. I had like done all my prep and the scallops were done because I only have two burners inside the camper. Uh-huh. And I was like, I kind of just want to eat these scallops and go to bed because I'm kind of tired. But I powered through. Uh, and, and got the reward. And got and totally. seized the brass ring. It was, seized the prize. It was a great, it was one of the best bites. That first bite of fried grouper was definitely one of the best bites of a, like, fish a whole fish that i've purchased or a fillet of fish that i've purchased and eaten in my life uh, wow like in the top five i can think now i'm not amazing. talking not talking about restaurant grade mm-hmm. fish although i would have been very happy if i had gotten served this fish at a restaurant and i've certainly been served worse like beer battered you know cod fish and chips before um 
So yeah, it was quite the win, and it's exactly in line with what you were saying. I didn't exactly use cornflakes, but I did use a couple of store-bought, uh, mm. you know, prepackaged mixes. But your compliment of me reminds me of something, and we may have joked about this when you first observed this, um, which it's a it's a a line from a later Neil Stevenson novel about Midwestern okay. cooking. I think it might be uh, Reemdy. Um, that's my, but it could be another one where he says. At one point, he observes that Midwesterners were disinclined to use in their food substances which the rest of America referred to as ingredients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you meaning that all the recipes are like, take a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and some cornflakes and some Velveeta. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> like all of the ingredients are actually fully formed foods of other foods in their own yes. right. Yeah, you want to get into it? Yeah, we're, let's we're talk already, books. We're 16 minutes into uh, into rambling. Today, listeners, we are talking about N.K. Jemisin's uh, The Fifth Season, uh, the first part of the Broken Earth trilogy. Um, she has uh, won the MacArthur Genius Grant, uh, which is pretty darn impressive. Yes. Um, and I think really the other thing that's pretty amazing, she won three consecutive Hugos in a row, um, all for the Broken Earth stuff. Which is just bananas. Like, if you actually think about the work that it would take to get three books out consecutively in the consideration period. In three consecutive years is what you're saying. Yeah, because I I think there are a handful of writers who have won three Hugo Awards in their career. I'm sure. Um, Although not, that's a pretty rarefied uh, group right there as well. But three in a row. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty nuts. Impressive. Yeah, yep. you'd be you'd be up there. Um, but um, she, uh, yeah, let's see some other stuff. Uh, she's worked for the New York Times Book Review. She's been an instructor. Um, she's a gamer and a gardener. Um, and uh, she says that she's single handedly responsible for saving the world from King Ozymandias, her dangerously intelligent ginger cat. Ah. Um, I love any re- I love any uh, any any any. Uh, reference to uh shelley's poem ozymandias is a good one so i'm happy to well and 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 by way of watchman i believe uh if she's talking Mm. about saving the world um although i I don't know i haven't read shelley's ozymandias but um oh it's really good yeah it's very short it's a sonnet um it's the one it's the look on my work see mighty and despair ah yeah yeah shout out to diane Leahy. AP English uh, teacher and probably the person responsible for me sitting in this chair right now. That and that and the chair salesman at whatever office. Uh, yeah, this was picked up secondhand <laughs> at a at a garage sale. So uh, yeah, kudos <laughs> to that person who lives on North Ivanhoe. There you go. The two people responsible for you sitting in this chair. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, we're full of uh, we're full of that kind of joke today. I love it. Yeah, it's a, the old proximal cause joke. Exactly. It's like something out. It's like something out of Cheers. It's like a. It's like a mistake that a coach would make in the first season of Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously an impressive writer. Uh, where do we begin in this recap? Do we do uh, protagonists? Do we do chapters? Yeah. Let's talk about our three protagonists and um, and then probably talk about the world itself a little bit. I sure. think that um, seeing that you can't really do this book without the fact that the protagonists interact with the world literally 
um, on a seismological way. Yep. And so we need to talk. And about the world the is planet. is sort of figuratively a character, and then also maybe literally a character as well, or or at mm-hmm. least a kind of hive mind like sentient. Um, but um, yeah, and one thing I think I'll just say too is that. I purposefully did not read any recaps because mm. there are mysteries in this book and I didn't want to yeah. spoil them. And um, and so and they're also it's incredibly dense and I think it's very easy to have missed little key details, too. I certainly went. Oh, yeah. I th- I've read the prologue three times now uh, because the prologue is incredibly dense and it almost reads like a sort of poem that is full mm-hmm. of full of clues. Um, but yeah, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Where should we start? So we've got three characters. One is named Demaya. Um, not the first character we run into, but probably the easiest character to recruit, uh, not to recruit, to recap. I just looked at the line in the rundown that says recruit. Uh, <laughs> Demaya is our, like, probably the simplest protagonist because she slots really nicely into, like, the Luke Skywalker mold. Like she has or some Harry Potter or Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. Any kind of book where, I mean, gosh, so many books it doesn't even have to be a magical or fantasy book. Um, Demaya has been discovered to have orogeny. Is that how I we're think, pronouncing I think this? that's how you say it. Yeah. Okay. O-R-O-G-E-N-Y. Um, people who display this ability are called orogenies. Or in these kind of slang dialect, they're simply called ragas, uh, which is a very derogatory term. Um, it is not something you would say in not even like semi-polite company. It really feels like a, a word that should be avoided. Um, some, I think, probably pretty clear crossover to our own world. Yes. Uh, where we, you know, words with double Gs that we tend to really, yes. really try to avoid. Yes. Um, Demaya is discovered to have orogeny. When you have orogeny, your nervous system basically, uh, connects to the, uh, seismological properties of this particular world and can cause earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, all sorts of bad things. Um, usually, um, orogenies are killed, uh, by the local populace. Um, she is not, she is recruited by a guardian named Shafa. She is taken to a place called the Fulcrum, which is in the biggest city in this planet, which is called the stillness, where she is going to learn how to control her power. Uh, we learn along the way, some stuff about other historical origins, um, and the role of the guardians, the guy Shafa, who has come to take her to the Fulcrum. That he is there to protect her. He is also there to protect the world from her. A little bit of both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, you say often killed or usually killed. Um, it, it's a lynching. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and there is a, you know, what has happened. Shafa, the guardian being sent to take Demaya, is what is supposed to happen. That is the legal process in place in this world. But that is often not followed because people are terrified uh, of these ragas. And so often they take it into their own hands. Um, another character, the first one we really meet is uh, Essen. I think I'm saying her name uh, correctly who her uh, chapters are rendered in second person 
and um and, and in fact often it does sound as though the narrator is talking to Essen. Remember, remember who you are, you're Essen. Um, uh, Essen is the mother of Nasun, daughter, and Uche. But Uche mm -hmm. has been murdered at the beginning of the book by her husband. He's been murdered or, um, because, in fact, it turns out he is an orogeny. And Essun knows this. Um, she is also an orogeny, but she's been keeping that a secret. She keeps it a secret from her husband. She keeps it a secret she's from everybody passing. in the town. She's been passing, indeed. Um, and so Essun is, is mentioned in the very dense, very mysterious prologue but then has a series of chapters where after she discovers her son has been killed, she sets out on her own. It's interesting. She has a couple of interactions with people in her village who are sympathetic, um, who behave, who know what she is or figure out that she's an orogeny and sort of try to help her um, get out safely. But it goes terribly. She loses her temper and ends up killing people and... It also turns out causing an earthquake, which is going to destroy the aquifers of this village. So basically, essentially killing the village. People are going to have to leave because there's not going to be any water. She sets out on this quest to track down her husband, who's killed her son. Along the way, she becomes guardian to Moa, who appears to her to be a boy. But also we learn in the prologue, and she starts to learn, is something not entirely human. Um, there's actually a quote from a academic treatise about these beings that refers to them as the non-human sentient entities. Um, and there's another one at the very, I think, uh, some, a being very similar to Moa in the very first scene of the book, uh, who's sort of present at this sundering. Um, and, um, and so the other thing I should say that's happening in Essence timeline that you've identified is there's been a really big earthquake uh, centered in the main um, city, Eumenes. I think this is the event that's described in the prologue. It is represented as potentially planet killing, although we also, there are a few clues that tell us it doesn't kill the planet um, because at one point the narrator hints that Essun is going to sort of recreate civilization there's a line mm. that's something like you wouldn't be here listening to this if it weren't for as soon or something like that so mm -hmm. so we know that as in, in essence time a very very large earthquake has taken place but Essun actually used her power to protect the lands around her and now she's sort of wandering around in the post uh, earthquake landscape along with moa who is seems to have been created by the earthquake earthquake he is born out of a kind of stone cocoon. Um, he can eat glass like it's candy, and he can also apparently turn things into glass or minerals, uh, which we learn in one of the latter chapters. Um, and I think that's all we need to say about Essen. I, the other thing, I, I mentioned this already, but I think it's really, really important is that she is always, her chapters are always rendered in the second person so as soon as yeah. you you know you're walking along the road you look down you see a boy he's incredibly dirty like it, it's written that way whereas the other two chap the other two protagonists are written in sort of third limited third person yeah 
Um, we even get some first-person narration in this book. I think we're going to probably talk about yeah. the different modes of narration here and there. Yeah. Uh, first-person um, from a kind of, like, omniscient narrator or maybe sort of Homeric storyteller. Like, like the person recounting this tale to the the generation to come. You know, the generation yeah. in the future of this time being, it sounds to me. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real like big N narrator, yeah. um, voice in that case. Big um, N, but also but, with personality, not not yeah. simply omniscient and dry, but omniscient and sort of conversational. You know. Yeah, willing to make even bad jokes <laughs> yeah. about uh, the things that this big N narrator is narrating. But I think we'll get to that when we talk sure. about the prologue, because sure. I imagine we're going to really talk about the pl- prologue a, a bit yeah. today. Yeah. Um, our third main character is named Cyanite. That's spelled. <laughs> S-Y-E-N-I-T-E. When you are listening to this book, you spend the first few minutes of her chapter being like, cyanide? I had cyanide like C-Y-A-N-I-T-E. And then I thought it was like the color. And then you start realizing that a lot of these origins um, end up taking on names of minerals. Yeah. Um, that is their kind of like what happens when they get renamed. Um Cyanite is a fourth ringer at the fulcrum. Um, ranks are measured at the fulcrum by the number of rings that one wears on one's hand. Uh, goes from zero when you are a grit. Uh, you're basically a plebe or a first year or insert a your piece of derogative sand. Yeah, <laughs> beginning uh, place. All the way up to ten rings, uh, which get worn on, uh, you know, all fingers and thumbs of two hands. So cyanite is basically a like court concubine. Her role is to go and live with a ten ringer named Alabaster, travel with him, and bear his children. Um, he has done that several times before with other lower ranking members of the fulcrum. Uh, she is supposed to travel with him to a city called Aliyah. Uh, where they are going to fix a harbor. Um, And along the way, they encounter um, almost a really bad seismological event, basically a a, mega eruption over a volcanic hotspot that was created by somebody called a node maintainer. Um, Node maintainers are former orogenies who we discover are put into really horrible uh, circumstances where they're basically imprisoned in a chair, fed through tubes, kept from dying uh, through basically nursing. They're pretty much vegetables. And they are also sometimes sexually abused by local populace. Um, and this one, um, the, the reason that orogenies can be dangerous is when they are emotional They can lash out and create earthquakes and eruptions and things like that. This particular character has been abused in such a way that the emotions aren't dampened and they basically try to to blow everything up. And um, even though that is averted through Alabaster and Cyanite's work, um, the node maintainer is killed, as is everybody at the particular node. they learn that they see that uh, cyanite who at first is really doesn't like alabaster very much begins to 
try to get to know him a little bit better, and then even help save him when he is poisoned in the city of Aaliyah. Um, anything I missed from Cyanite's arc? Um, I mean, you know, you refer to her as a court concubine, which isn't untrue, but she, I think, she is a skilled orogeny who does get sent on missions to do actual like geo she's not just her job is not simply to have sex um True. That, and, and, and in fact she's kind of t <clears throat> one sense is she could maybe get weasel out of this sexual assignment but she's sort of choosing to go along with it because she thinks it will lead to kind of greater advancement up the the ring rank system and so totally. you know there's an interesting these orogenies both have power and have power over their own lives and other people's lives, but are also subject to control in an interesting way. Um, not, you know, sort of not unlike the military, I suppose, although they don't volunteer. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, control is probably one of the biggest themes in this book. Yes. Um, that being able to control your erogeny is is crucial. Uh, to the people that practice it and their ability to stay alive. Because if they can't control it, we learned that they are swiftly killed by their guardians. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there's so many themes and motifs of control and losing control throughout and, the first and half people of this book. under other people's control in various exactly. ways yes. and chafing against that, fighting against it or accepting it or negotiating with it in various ways. I think, yeah, control probably wins as the theme mm -hmm. of the first half of the book and i think you know i mean like that that's one of the things that i really want to talk about today like you can't think about this book without the specter of like american history yeah lurking over it um there are references to slavery but not our slavery right um and i think one of the impressive things that she does in this book is that that all is there. That's all operating in the background um, as an illusion that we all get. But it doesn't seem to be the driving point. Like that doesn't seem to be the thing that we're here for. Um, so I think she, yeah. she does a very tasteful job in rendering all of those themes and probably having a very strong point that she wants to make about our world while still very expertly crafting a narrative and a world that exists in its own way with its own problems and traumas and horrors. Did you notice the epigraph? Yes. Um, I noticed it because I also have heard her say this in other places. Oh, but do you want to go ahead and read it for us? Sure. The book's epigraph is, <clears throat> or really more of a dedication. I don't know if it's an epigraph or a dedication. It sort of functions as both. I would say this is a dedication because I think for an ep it ha for it to be an epigraph, it actually has to be a quote mm. of somebody else. Mm -hmm. For all those who have to fight for the respect that everyone else is given without question. And, you know, again, I think it's impossible, as you just said, to think about that and not think about enslavement and in the American mm -hmm. context. But that's not that's not what's going on exactly in this book. And actually seems like she's exploring sort of more of the gradations um, I actually have a reading cue to the point you just made, so I could do that. Is that a would jump you... in there? Okay, yeah. So this is er, pretty early on. This is when Shafa, the guardian, is taking um, Demaya to Eumenes to the fulcrum, and he's told her a story about a very dangerous orogeny named um, Misalem, who was then 
threatening to destroy a city, but then was controlled effectively and killed by a guardian. They're riding along. Uh, Demaya is kind of sitting in front of Shafa on the same horse. He's rather large, um, and she's a child too, so he's physically much bigger. And it starts with dialogue from Shafa. You're quiet now, says Shafa after a while, patting her hands on the pommel to bring her out of her reverie. His hand is more than twice the size of hers, warm and comforting in its hugeness. Still thinking about the story? She's been trying not to, of course, but she has. A little. You don't like that Miss Selim is the villain of that tale, that you are like Miss Selim, a potential threat, without a Shemshina to control you. He says this matter-of-factly, not as a question. Demaya squirms. How does he always seem to know what she's thinking? I don't want to be a threat, she says in a small voice. Then, greatly daring, she adds, But I don't want to be controlled, either. I want to be... She gropes for the words, then remembers something her brother once told her about what it meant to grow up. Responsible for myself. An admirable wish. Shafa says, but the plain fact of the matter, Damaya, is that you cannot control yourself. It isn't your nature. You are lightning, dangerous unless captured in wires. Your fire, a warm light on a cold, dark night, to be sure, but also a conflagration that can destroy everything in its path. I don't want to destroy anybody. I'm not bad like that. Suddenly it's too much. Demaya tries to turn to look at him, though this overbalances her and makes her slip on the saddle. Shafa immediately pushes her back to face forward with a firm gesture that says without words, sit properly. Demaya does so, gripping the pommel harder in her frustration. And then, because she is tired and angry and her butt hurts from three days on horseback and because her whole life has gone wrong, and it hits her all at once that she will never again be normal, she says more than she means to. And anyways, I don't need you to control me. I can control myself. Shafa reins the horse to a snorting halt. Demaya tenses in dread. She smarted off to him. Her mother always whipped her in the head when she did that back home. Will Shafa whop her now? But Shafa sounds as pleasant as usual as he says, can you really? What is it about that uh, passage that, uh, that, that speaks to you? Well, I mean, you were just talking about control being the theme. And the relationship between Shafa and Demaya is so wonderfully complex. Uh, Demaya has been mistreated by her family. Mm -hmm. And when Shafa shows up, he scolds them. You know, they put her in a barn. They didn't give her what she needs. And Shafa also clearly cares about her clearly pities her and is also bringing her to a place where they're going to train her where she actually probably can have a decent life if she plays by the rules but at the same time it's very clear that he's physically dominating her when she turns around mm -hmm. he pushes her back into place his hands twice as big as hers that is in this passage comforting to her but later um you know what happens shortly after the passage I just read is that Shafa executes a kind of test. The test, I mean, it's reminiscent of the Gam Jabbar from Dune. You know, it's 
he is testing to see if she can maintain her control when he inflicts pain on her. And he does it in a horrible way. He breaks her hand with his hand. Um, and she passes the test. And after that, he's gentle and he's nurturing again. And I think in this, you see, you see him both being kind, but also strict and also cruel and also controlling. And his, it, 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 all of these things are happening at the same time. Demaya is reacting to both things. She both, you sense, is maybe kind of loves him, but also kind of fears him and also kind of hates him. Now, two, she's making sense of all that. And also, I think, you know, you talked about enslavement in history. And when we think about, we think about systems of control and social control, mm-hmm. it's rarely that the people doing the controlling are entirely evil even if what they're doing yep. is bad there are people you know even in if you think about 12 years a slave and solomon northrup's tale which was you know a true story they made into a movie recently and in the movie benedict cumberbatch plays this kind of kind-hearted enslaver who actually gives solomon a violin at one point and gives him days off and saves his life at one point but also is part of this enslaving system and i think you know in these systems of social control you can have people who are kind who are still reinforcing that system and who think they're yeah. doing the right thing because they have convinced themselves that that system of control is necessary um you know it's it's rare in systems of social control that people are behaving as out and out villains, although that happens too. And True. all of that's going on in that passage. And it's being rendered in every sentence is giving you some reminder of this relationship of control between Shafa and Demaya too. And it's, it's creepy and, and wonderful, I think. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, like you can be complicit in a system of control and still think that you are doing good and you might very well be doing good. Like you said, he is taking her away from a situation in which she would probably be killed. The fact that he is removing her to a situation where she will only be killed if she can't behave does kind of make a pretty unveiled allusion to the current sort of racial politics of not just the United States, but I think that that is primarily uh, what we are supposed to see here, that um, if you don't toe the line, there's a place and a space for good ragas, but probably not ones for that uh, aren't willing to, quote unquote, behave. And well, in this world, from what we see, also has patriarchy, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that that a orogeny um, cyanite is not only made to control her power and you know to do these little tasks but her 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 body and her reproduction is controlled by the Mm -hmm. system as well um and if you think about you know what is expected what has been expected of women throughout our country's history with you know some relief from the sexual revolution that's now at the very heart of our politics, you know, about who's going to control women's reproduction. You know, that's yeah. also one of these themes, too. Um, yeah, and it, it is, it, it gets extra complicated because the orogenies are, in fact, dangerous. 
And if the Orogenies were going, they could become sort of God enslaver demons themselves. You know, they they do have the power to do tremendous harm. And the question of what is to be done and how do you create a stable system around that is it's not an easy question. There's clearly something wrong with the world as it's being described but it's also kind of hard to imagine, um, given the orogeny's um, nature. You know, mm-hmm. if they get angry, earthquakes happen and people die. Um, it's hard. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine another system in its basic structures. There's elements of the system that could certainly be more humane. You know, like the node maintainers feels particularly cruel, and and evil. But, you know, so I love the moral complexity of it, and I don't know where it's going. We do know that one of our major characters, not a protagonist, Alabaster, who's a very powerful orogeny, sees a better way. And then we also know that somebody very similar to Alabaster, the emperor, (laughs) in the beginning, also chooses to unleash in a very deliberate way to unleash a kind of cataclysmic event on the world. And honestly, I haven't looked this up. It's even possible that Alabaster is the emperor. Uh, you, you, I don't... Oh, you, think that that, you think that that person in the prologue is the emperor? I think so. The I, person who I reaches down and breaks the earth? Maybe I miss... It. Yeah, I didn't pull, I didn't pull that because the, the description of the emperor is pretty impotent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the narrator in the prologue says, these characters don't matter at all. And then we shift to the other, to that, to that character and the stone eater that's watching with him. Oh, then who um, is, yeah, yeah, I see again, it's so dense and I may have just missed that, that sort of camera pan. Um, yeah, it does. It happens pretty quickly. Um, but uh, let's see, um, where is it? Yeah. Uh, the Black Star is where the leaders of the Empire meet to do their leaderish things. Right. I, I love how, like, the the Cabal and the Illuminati of this planet, like, we don't actually... We see the Fulcrum, which is the Order of the Orogenies. We don't see any of the government of the Stills. Yeah. Which yeah. I love... Like, I love that normal people are called Stills. It's another... You know, her labeling and her world building is pretty top drawer. The, the muggles. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Of this world. Yeah, the muggles. The muggles of this world. Mm, she would have had to go back to the drawing board with that one. Yeah. Another, another double Seems G a little word. light. Yeah. Seems a little... Yeah. Yeah, oh, God, you're right. Another... Yeah, the muggles and the ragas. Um, the Amber Sphere is where they keep their emperor carefully preserved and perfect. He wanders its golden halls in genteel despair, doing what he is told and dreading the day his masters decide that his daughter makes a better ornament. Mm. None of these places or people matter, by the way. I simply point them out for context. But here is a man who will matter a great deal. Ah. And we shift to the person who we think breaks the continent in the first few pages of the book. All right. Well, so, so I was, yeah, I think you're right. It's clearly not the emperor, but it could be Alabaster. Like You're this right. man's yes. description and is it, it and it might not be. And that's part of what's going on here is that the cataclysmic word world cracking event seems to be taking place in is essence timeline. Right. The other events, the other two protagonists seem to be happening a little bit before that or mm-hmm. a thousand years later or a thousand years before <laughs> it. 
And it's also unclear to me whether Demaya's timeline and Cyanite's timeline are the same or separate. Right. And another possibility, too, is Demaya might become Cyanite. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're both described as being from the Midlands, the the sort yep. of like neither the Poles. They're both, uh, I forget the term for it, but essentially uh, orogenies who appeared uh, away from the fulcrum and were brought mm-hmm. in. And we know that eventually, eventually Demaya will be given a mineral name. It's mm-hmm. possible that the mineral name that she's given is Cyanite, and this is the same person. Um, or... And we also know that Demaya is really good at this. Yes, like she, as is the Cyanite. Last chapter, right, the last chapter we see, she's basically bullied for being the um, teacher's pet. And, yeah, um, and she's really good. She's very, she's a talented, promising orogeny, does very, very well in the school, and Cyanite, probably about 30, is a mm-hmm. very talented, up-and-coming uh, orogeny who's achieved the fourth ring level at a pretty young age too so they could mm-hmm. i don't know they could be the same person it didn't occur to me until i had actually read the whole section and then i went back and read the prologue and started thinking about the time frame and, yeah. and that was what really convinced me oh at least there are at least two different timelines here and maybe there are yeah. three and also maybe there are intersecting characters because these characters destinies are going to intertwine in some way they have to they have otherwise right? we wouldn't they, i think we, right. otherwise it would be, it would be <laughs> very strange novel yeah. structure we're in like jim jarmish territory yeah. all of a sudden <laughs> like yeah. i mean like which would be great yeah. but a really strange turn for Mid- midway you know, through a... tom Waits starts smoking cigarettes and it's like hey, <laughs> you ever wonder why these earthquakes are always happen at 2 a.m or like just a third of the book was in Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know one reason for that. This is a weird aside that I don't know if I should tell you here, but one night I was drinking alcohol late into the night at a bar in Guatemala, and I met one of the funders of Mystery Train, who is a Japanese businessman who convinced... Actually, I think he was a government official, but he convinced either... I can't remember if he worked for Sony or if he worked for the government, but he was also friends of Jim Jarmusch and he convinced them to give Jim Jarmusch like a hundred thousand dollars to make mystery train. Um, And his name's in the credits. He gave me, that's amazing. Yeah. He gave me his business card. Uh, He got very, very drunk um, Uh and staggered home and gave me his business card. It was an interesting conversation. So that might be the reason uh, which is but, that is that he was getting money from this fellow. I I could look. I could figure out who this is. If we go th- if we go through Mystery Train and look for like the highest level like executive producer with a Japanese name. That's the man who I met at this bar one night in Guatemala. It's going to be Goto Dango. <laughs> it was not Goto Dango. Yeah, um, that would be amazing. This man was not quite at the level. He was probably more of a like junior vice president. Uh, as opposed to, you know, Goto Sana, head of the company. But um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, these characters do have to all merge at some point. Yeah. And I think that's the part of the book that I am enjoying the most. I'm enjoying a lot of this yeah. book. Um, I was surprised by, I was really expecting science fiction. Yeah. Um, we are calling this this book of, this uh, set of three books, Black SFAF. And it won um, a Hugo. It won a Hugo. 
I am, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I know very little about the three authors that were reading in this group, mm-hmm. uh, other than Colson Whitehead. Um, and um, to open this book up and realize, like, oh, this is a fantasy novel. This is not science fiction. Yeah. Um, was a real, was a real, like, but I, still, I mean, I love fantasy novels. It's what I grew up reading. Um, and I mean, all those books that you mentioned at the top, Lloyd Alexander, Ursula Le Guin, Susan Cooper. I mean, those are the syllabus of my young life. Yeah. And I'm really happy to be back in this kind of very inventive and just very good piece of fantastical fiction. Let me ask you, based on what you just said, what do you think about the level of density and complexity? And in in particular, I'm referring to, okay, so there's geology, and then there's kind of magic, and then there are these other sort of rock beings, and then there's also sort of architectural history. There's three protagonists. There's at least two timelines, maybe three, maybe four, because there's also the future generation that this is being told to i'm also enjoying the book quite a bit there's a part of me that's sort of like i wonder if we could have just simplified all this a little bit i wonder if we could have told a tighter tale that wasn't trying to do quite so much and then maybe did the things it did a little more effectively and i'm not sure exactly where i land because i do i do enjoy the mystery of it i do enjoy that i don't really have any idea what's going to happen uh, I, I see possibilities, but I really don't know. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts about that? Is it in the sweet spot for you? It's a lot. Um, and I think that it's intentional that she's doing it because this is a novel that is about history, deep history. Like this has been going on for not even centuries in this world. This has been going on for millennia. millennia yeah. Um, and any time that you are trying to do world building in a place where there has to be that kind of density of history, there has to be a lot of stuff that is unclear and that is forgotten and that is mysterious and is just plain weird. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I, I hear you like just like we talked about with the arrest. Um, this book starts hard and you really have to you don't get. The names of our protagonists pretty quickly you get a series of characters that were shown and then are kind of jerked away um you get this very strange sort of genesis moment of we get to see one of the stone eaters kind of come out of a geode and you think is this the main character and then it's not and we don't even like really see anything like it for about 200 pages um But I think what she is trying to dramatize, I think she is trying to dramatize the fact that this world is very dangerous. Um, There's that interlude where she talks about the fact that the people of this world do not look up and they don't look out. Mm. They see stars, but they certainly don't think about other worlds. Mm. And they certainly don't try to voyage across the sea. Mm. There's this terrifying thing where they talk about 100-foot tsunamis as a like the little brother to the big waves that roam the ocean. And you're like, oh my God, this is not a safe world. So a lot has been lost in this world. Um, And we go through these things called seasons, which is a lot like George R.R. Martin's like winter is coming. Like in the Game of Thrones world, you get winters that last for years. 
And you get these seasons that maybe even last for decades in some of them, where there is so much ash thrown up into the the atmosphere that the world cools off and lots of extinctions happen. Yeah. And so everybody is unsure of the history. And I think that that is what she is trying to do. Hmm. Um, that she's trying to put us in that same place of really not knowing what is going on, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. It really places this novel at the center of, center of that moral ambivalence that you were talking about when you were talking about control. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is my, like, that's what I think is going on. Whether or not it's enough to keep people reading the next sentence, that I think is going to be a case by case basis. And I could really see some people being like, this is too dense. Well, you know, I think your answer, I think articulates something. I think that's important, important clarification. Cause I, I do really love the vastness of the history of this place. And actually one of the questions I really want to ask you is related to that. But I think maybe what I'm talking about when it comes to complexity is more the number of sort of chess pieces that could affect the plot. And in particular, you know, I don't read a lot of fantasy anymore. I do prefer science fiction. And I think one of the reasons for that, quick aside, Orson Scott Card's definition of sci-fi versus fantasy, I saw him give a talk one time, and his definition is fantasy books have trees, sci-fi books have rivets on the cover. He's not wrong. Yeah, and and it's a fun, I mean it's kind of a joke, but yeah, I it think, is kind of a joke. I think that I'm also just I'm not terribly interested in magic as a concept mm-hmm. because I kind of think I enjoy physics. I and, mm-hmm. and I enjoy you know, there are certain things that might appear to be magical, like quantum physics, but I like that there is a explanation rather than it's just, I learned this ancient language and then the gods mm-hmm. chose to imbibe me with this power. That to me is, you know, not that interesting to me. I mean, I did love Tolkien, um, but I just, and so to me, the erogeny is just a little bit too close to magic. I feel like I might enjoy this book a little bit better if it were set on this planet and it were set at the sort of this technological level. But the the the, the earthquake control was sort of more a steampunk stump mm. steampunk kind of mechanism. You know, like if there was some kind of like rudimentary like, oh, we have these machines that can sort of sense like that the 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 the, the uh, quake starting and can deliver pressure that way or something. And the idea. But I do kind of like their magic. I like that it's grounded in geology. But then we get the, like, stone demon angel things. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know that we need that. And I don't know we, that we need Father Earth. And it's really sort of more kind of like those elements and that that there's just a lot of different kinds of forces that can impact mm-hmm. the world. And it's kind of like, you know, it feels more like three-dimensional chess than just good old chess. Um, yeah. And and that I'm I'm dri- so that's maybe more what I'm driving at. I do actually like the vastness of the world. And actually, one of my questions for you about that is, I know that N.K. Jemison has expressed an interest in stability. You know, mm-hmm. and and one of the other themes of the book is stability. And Eumenes is this old city that 
is not necessarily as big or as wealthy as some of the newer cities that have sprung up in the current age, but it's lasted longer, you know, because it's got yeah. this kind of like pyramid structure in the middle of it and because they know to build their gates out of stone and not iron. And that it's essentially a city that prides itself on being able to survive seasons. And mm-hmm. and I'm curious, like, does that does that does that concept resonate? What are the equivalents in our world i mean i i i can think of one i'll throw one out but i think there are others immediately when i think of the relationship to say of eumenes to alia the place the newer city where alabaster and um cyanite go i think of like london and new york you know Mm -hmm. uh and london being the sort of old city that started i mean what i don't even know when london started like before a long 13 time a long time ago <laughs> like it was an old city in 1300 AD right yeah, totally and um and you know what london was then and what london is now is very different and what 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 london was then parts of what london is now would have been a village 3 days ride away from london now you know it it swallowed but i'm curious what that sort of does does what does eumenes right remind you of and is it a concept hmm. that that has, you know, does it feel analogous and relevant in our world today? Is there an analog to Eumenes? Um, I, I wasn't thinking that way. I mean, the, the point of Eumenes in this book is that we, we learn right off the bat that it's designed to withstand seasons. And then almost the first action we see is a horrific cataclysm that you think probably should destroy Eumenes. Yeah. Um, but we also know that like it has dealt with stuff like this before, so maybe not. But the narrator um, says Essun was not in Eumenes, which is a good thing for you, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Which strongly suggests that if she had been there, she would have died. Yeah. It is a metaphor. It's a piece of figurative um, language uh, for a stability that is passing out of the world Mm. Um, and that it's the beginning of this new season, the fifth season that ostensibly the rest of this book and then the two books that follow it discuss it. I mean, I really think that Eumena stands for the destruction of the old order, Mm. um, or at least that's what we're supposed to think it is. Because as we've discussed so far, this is a pretty cagey author who plays her cards pretty darn close to her chest. Yeah. And plays and has a has a large hand. I don't know what game we're playing, but it's like well, she this says is a, yeah. the world ends, and it, I mean it's it's almost it's oh, like it's a great. poet, right? Did you have it? It's like the, the first line end, of the book. She, the world ends, the world ends, the world ends oh. for the last time. Well, that is a uh, T.S. Eliot poem, "The Hollow Men," oh. um, and that is. Uh, but she changes the last line of it. Um, the T.S. Eliot poem goes: "This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper." Um, mm. And it's ostensibly uh, inspired by *Heart of Darkness* and Mr. Kurtz and all of that stuff. But she says, "For the last time, this is the way the world ends." Except we know that the world continues because, like you yeah. said, it, you know, you wouldn't be here if she was in Eumenes. So, like, so what does for I, the last time mean? Maybe this is a story about a transition from this, like, stable but unfair society into something better. 
Um, that's what I am hoping. I, I, I like that theory. Um, and I think the decision of the maybe Alabaster or Alabaster-like character to kind of break the world, it would seem to be motivated by something like that. This does not. This is an angry person, but not a crazy person. I think mm-hmm. as it's represented, although Alabaster might be sort of right on the edge. Um, it also makes me wonder if part of that order. Is it about simply destroying Eumenes and their control over every single sort of post-season age? Or is there something about what that character did at the beginning that also knocks the stillness, the name of this world, out of this hyper-seismological epic? That maybe yeah. maybe this is you know how they whenever there's a big earthquake a lot of times the seismo- seismologists will say well the good news is is that we released a lot of tension so we probably won't have another bad one again for a while you know was this like uh, to <laughs> to use a upper middle brow was this like the the Randy Waterhouse's prostate sort of release <laughs> of the is is this the grand release of seismological tension uh, that this planet needed to enter a more stable era where they don't have to worry about earthquakes happening all the time anymore is that what we witnessed or is it about destroying a political order? But yeah, I have to think I have to think that whoever that person was in the prologue that what what that person is doing is trying to make a better world somehow. Yeah, I think destroying. you're right. You um in order to make a Pangea omelet, you have to break a whole bunch of crust of of crust. <laughs> it is, it's ba- ba- Bakunin's Pangea. <laughs> We have Chekhov's, yeah, sometimes the false Chekhov gun, and now we have Bakunin's Pangea. Bakunin's Pangea. <laughs> you know, like, we've had some We haven't mentioned Star Wars or Larry Niven yet on this episode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to make a ring of uh, seismological material around the solar system. That, that, that one doesn't count. It was forced. I want to do my reading. The reason I want to bring this up um, you, I want you and I want the reader, I want you to count the number of times that the narrative doubles back on itself mm. or makes some kind of claim and then undercuts a previous, that claim later. Um, because I really think that that's an important aspect of this book. And I think she starts, I think she gets that in uh, early um, and does it in complex and interesting ways. Prologue. You are here. Let's start with the end of the world, why don't we? Get it over with and move on to more interesting things. First, a personal ending. There is a thing she will think over and over in the days to come, as she imagines how her son died and tries to make sense of something so innately senseless. She will cover Uche's broken little body with a blanket, except his face, because he is afraid of the dark. And she will sit beside it numb, and she will pay no attention to the world that is ending outside. The world has already ended within her, and neither ending is for the first time. She's old hat at this by now. 
What she thinks then and thereafter is, but he was free. And it is her bitter, weary self that answers this almost question every time her bewildered, shocked self manages to produce it. He wasn't. Not really. But now he will be. I think the way that she manages to do all of that in a fairly breezy tone of voice mm. um, and narrate a, a, a large personal ending mm-hmm. um, that must be horrible mm-hmm. um, and set in motion so many of the themes of the book, control, ambivalence, confusion, obscurity, loss um is so amazing and then of course she has to bring up the concept of freedom um and the acknowledgement that to in this world that you aren't free until you are dead is uh is a really important place to begin and the subtitle of the 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 subtitle of the chat of the prologue you are here with its attendance jokes about maps right. um, and the present tense and just sort of a like a existential statement. Uh, David Foster Wallace brings this up over and over again in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. The you are here stands in for this constant kind of imperative reminder that you are on vacation. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting because the immediate reference I thought of was uh, Lethem. Like the the, mm-hmm. the sort of the multi layered meaning of you are here, it it, yeah. it, it um, echoes of every bumper sticker has come true, you know, <laughs> at once. But also, you are here. The you in this moment, I think, is the reader, but it's also Esun. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, the doubling back. I mean, you you have also in this let's start with an ending a personal ending so we know that we're also going to get bigger and broader endings but then we also hear that Esun has reset before too and that's another thing we haven't mentioned is is the second person and maybe this is the last thing we should talk about uh did you say everything you wanted to say about that Mm -hmm. reading what do you make of the second person in reference to Esun yeah that's a tough one we might um i might i might okay let's i'm gonna make a quick run at it that it is the usually when you deploy second person um you are attempting i just did it right there (laughs) one is attempting um to kind of make the reader complicit in the action Mm. um it's both a way to um make the action immediate because the reader is like Oh, me? <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah, and then, it, it is the voice of the game master, right? You know. Yeah. Yes. You you yeah. you turn down the left corridor and th- everything is darkness and then a match flicks and suddenly the walls come to light and you can see the glittering jewels of the the dungeon around you. Yeah. Yeah, second person can be a bit of a cheap trick. Mm. It is a quick hit of immediacy that then also drags with it some real problems of, of like of craft of keeping characters straight. And I think what she's doing here is she is acknowledging that and playing with it um, by continually making us wonder, like you've said, is it the reader? Is it Essen? 
she's certainly set up a situation in which Essen would be forgiven for having some dissolution of self. Yeah. And um, I think that, I think that, that, I think she is trying to do both. I think she's trying to implicate the reader. You, you have to in a book where the prospect of American slavery is, you know, kind of hovering in the background and is ostensibly being read by an audience of white folk. Yeah. White American folk. Um, but I think also there is a narrative thing that she is also doing, um, implicating Essun, um, and really returning this, her narrative to this kind of constant, you are here, you are going through this and it's hard. Yeah. And I, I agree with all of that. And there are a couple other layers I noticed this time that I've never noticed before with, with second person. Cause I think if you had asked me what does second person do, I would have said, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of what you said, which is implicating the reader. Um, that's a really good insight. But what I would have said is that it suggests to me that this particular protagonist feels a little bit disassociated with their, their self. And I think certainly yeah. like in Jennifer Egan's visit from the goon squad, that is definitely the case with Bobby. You know, he's sort of standing mm -hmm. outside of himself, watching himself in a very tragic and sad way. I actually didn't have that effect quite as much this time, maybe a little bit at first when she's mourning, but it continues for page after page. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you know, I've been spending a fair amount of time alone lately a lot like you know i'm having conversations with people and i you know visited with some friends and i probably will again soon but number of days where i'm really in my thoughts all day which i actually kind of like but it started to remind me of that sense it, rather than being disassociated with myself of kind of sinking into my thoughts in my reality the way that you can when say you're on a three-day backpacking trip by yourself and the world kind of mm -hmm. collapses so I found that happening and then the other thing is that you know if you're writing in first person the speaker is very clearly the character when you're writing in second person it raises the question of who is who is calling who who, who is calling whom you <laughs> and that sentence was almost entirely pronoun. <laughs> that was <indeed>. amazing. <laughs> who is calling who? <laughs> you. you. <That's... laughs> With the exception of is. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's. There's a. That is a bad sentence. There's a to be verb. There's a gerund. There's a. Come on, man. That's badass. It had. It had exactly. Two oh no! It's great. It's, it's like. Badass it's like sentence. there's no. There's no there there. Indeed. The, yeah, you're in Gertrude Stein territory. I love it. So you're taking a bad sentence and making it great. And I think in this case, the answer to that question is this kind of Homeric narrator. You know, the person who is who's who's joking with us at the beginning, and you are here. Mm -hmm. And I think you've probably read more Homer than I am, and I don't know if Homer ever is playful like that the way that this narrator is. But I definitely have this sense of. Gather round, gather round, you know, wept so, you know, we're about to hear the story of how the world ended for the last time. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to start with a big tragedy and then we're going to start talking about a small tragedy. And remember who you are. You are as soon. You've been other people. But right now you are as soon. And I, I don't know. I do, I do feel a little bit of like the Beowulf narrator, um, the Beowulf mm -hmm. poet or, or Homer and that, although I don't know if they're ever quite that playful. 
the way that that this is being um, playful. But definitely every time I hear you, I'm imagining this sort of character slash narrator of the now present telling us about how the world we're living in was born. And and that's not mm-hmm. something I'd ever really thought about before of the power of the second person too. And so, and I think part of it is that the second person lasts for so long, the effect starts to change and it yeah. starts to morph from that sense of disconnection to almost that sense of I actually find myself really immersing into a soon in a way that I, I wouldn't have necessarily expected. And that's the immediacy that you get out of the second person. Yeah. That's that's the thing that you go there for, yeah. um, because it really does seat the reader alongside the narrator and in the narrator. As opposed to first person, where it can be kind of more like you're sitting next to them at the bar and they're telling yeah. their story. Although, with some exceptions, like Andy Weir's Project Hill Mary first person feels very internal. Maybe because it's present mm-hmm. tense and maybe because he's kind of narrating, like, I see something. What is it? Mm -hmm. You know, that he's kind of narrating thought in a way as opposed to, you know, sort of being like, and then I figured the best thing to do would be to hightail myself out of town in a jiffy, you know? Yeah, I think you're totally right that the the present tense is what makes it because that's another that's another tool of immediacy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, is uh, is the second person here present tense or is it? Yes, I think so. I yeah, think so. Yeah. So that's my recollection. It is a super immediate kind yeah. of uh, point of view, then. Yeah. Um, which is might be why you're feeling such a, um, you know, such a identification with Asun. I think that's intentional. And a sense that Asun is is very contained. That Asun is not particularly perceptive of other people's thoughts and experiences Mm -hmm. too i mean there's this moment where she's on her killing streak where she sees a young kid and a father who's concerned and that kind of snaps her out of it she has a little bit of empathy in that moment and she realizes oh my god i'm acting like a monster um Mm -hmm. and she stops and there are a few other moments like that in her interactions with the boy moa where her kind of motherly um for lack of a better word, instinct, and I don't mean that in the biological sense, I mean it in the behavioral sense. She's been a mother. Um, yeah. She is a mother, and she sees what appears to be a child who needs help, and her motherly instincts kind of snap in. But for a lot of times, she, se- she seems rather fixated on her experience of the moment, too. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, the only reason, I mean, she stops because she realized, like, she's being monster. She's being a monster because she is... Uh, She's she's been treated like a monster. Right. Like she is in a monstrous situation where other people have been monsters to her. Yes. And um and yeah, it's that moment of empathy where empathy is supposed to lift you into a place of not simply retaliating. It, um, and it of, it does in yeah. that moment. Although yeah. you know, although it is her her retaliation is shocking because she, you know, she kills the headman who's trying to help her and who's actually mm-hmm. behaving with quite a bit of integrity and compassion yeah. in that moment and it's 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 tragic how monstrous she becomes, but then she does you know sort of pull back from the brink. She's I mean she's it's another observation is that there are no heroes in this book. There are protagonists. It's complicated. Yeah, um, everybody's complicated. Everybody's complicated, and nobody maybe you know Demaya and Cyanite might be the least um, morally compromised thus far. Although what Demaya has to do in order to survive in the school. Uh, is rather 
devious and cyanite is also kind of forced to make these compromises around her body and her reproduction in order to kind of gain the power that she wants to gain within the society too so yeah there's there are no straightforward heroes in the fifth season so far let's move on to trivia all right um so okay as usual i tend to ask about inspiration and author history okay um a large uh influence in nk jemison's work is anime uh which she began encountering um as a five or six year old she says in the 1980s Hmm. Um, i'm going to give you three anime series your job is to select the one that she has identified as the most formative. Hmm. Okay. Was it A, Astro Boy, B, Robotech, C, Voltron? Okay. Astro Boy, Robotech, and Voltron. Of all of those, Voltron is the only one that I watched more than once. Um, Voltron was basically a bunch of human-controlled fighting robots that could then also combine to form another really big robot to kind of, like, stop invaders from invading Earth and things like that, I think, usually... There would, and maybe there were some Daikaiju who Voltron would have to fight. I'd, um, Robotech, I believe, were mechs, which were sort of like Transformers, but a human controlled them. So, mm-hmm. like, you, you, you basically control sort of like a Decepticon, except for you were in control of it. I, Astro Boy, I feel like the least familiar with, and it feels like the most kid-like. Um, I do remember Steam Boy, um, which was much later. Um, I, I just think that the other two don't quite sound like N.K. Jemison, so I'm going to go with Astro Boy. Here's the quote to let you know how you did. Robotech blew my mind because I saw stuff there that I'd never seen in American media up to that point. I saw heroes die, but the show kept going. Mm. I saw women warriors who weren't scantily clad or incompetent. I saw an interracial romance. Mm. Yeah, Star Trek had the first interracial kiss, but it never went farther than that. Roy and Claudia were an actual long-term healthy relationship. So I watched more anime, including some Miyazaki, and there I saw unhappy but good endings. The heroes didn't always win. The the villains sometimes changed into heroes. I was used to the simplistic black and white, good and evil binary that's so endemic in American stuff. And anime's shades of gray pulled me out of that rut. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, I I think if I'd been more familiar with Robotech, I might have picked up on some of those themes, but... I was overjoyed to read that. Robotech is a a central uh, plank of uh my childhood um mostly because of the role-playing game Mm. Uh, i did watch a lot of robotech but i certainly read the shit out of uh palladium's uh robotech role-playing game well let me give you your trivia question um okay so in the fulcrum demaya when she's studying uh one of her tormentors um who 
at first appears as kind of a friend, but appears to be a false friend, uh, is a boy named Mishishe, which is spelled M-A-X-I-X-E. Um, and Mishishe is, in fact, a mineral. Um, and in our world, Mishishe is a gem. Um, it is a bluish variation of beryl which is much more common. Um, and Mishishe has a fascinating quality that it's known for. And I'm going to give you three possibilities, and you need to guess which of those fascinating qualities it is. I'll Amazing. say it's possible that the name was chosen because of this quality. Okay. <laughs> but I have no evidence to support that. Okay. Um, so option A, uh, Mishishe's color is a bright kind of aquamarine blue but the color fades if it's exposed to sunlight or even like house lights but the color can be restored with gamma ray or x-ray radiation that's a okay fading color restored with gamma rays b in its pulverized form, if you grind it to a powder, it can be combined with pulverized lithium to, and some other chemicals to create a formula for the cathode material for batteries. And some early experiments shows that lithium barrel phosphate batteries might prove to be up to 15% more efficient than lithium iron phosphates, which is the kind of batteries that most RVers and hybrids use these days too. So that could be a big breakthrough battery technology. C, if the gem, if a gem of Mishishe is smashed, it actually can release a kind of mineral odor that many people find unpleasant and is said to be reminiscent of rotting cabbage. <laughs> nice work, because now one and three could definitely, A and C could be the little hint that you gave me mm. uh, that this uh, maybe this character is named this way because of his particular uh, traits. Um, you know, he, he is a bit of a stink bomb, but uh, he's also a little bit more of a chameleon. Mm. So I'm going to go with A. You are correct. Hooray! Excellent reasoning. <laughs> Excellent reasoning. <laughs> well, I don't know if I would have gotten there without the hint. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, 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 that was a that was a pretty significant hint. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the orogenies and guardians. How is that possible? Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by me, Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. You can find us on Twitter at Upper Middle Pod, and you can check out the birthday pictures on Instagram at Upper Middle Brown. And hey, Jonathan Leatham, we're glad you're enjoying your new favorite podcast. This one's this one goes out to you, buddy. <laughs> Lots of love from the lads. <laughs> That's right, he did call us lads. Yes, I like that. I love that. Well done, lads. <laughs>